Hello and welcome to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Resnick. This episode is brought to you in part by Independent Pharmacy Alliance. IPA is a trade association buying group representing 3,700 independent pharmacies, leveraging buying power to help pharmacies access pharmaceuticals at the best prices. IPA now serves 3,700 independent community pharmacies across the United States and offers a comprehensive third-party help desk, legislative advocacy, and continuing education free of charge to members. Learn more today at ipagroup.org. In this episode of the IPA podcast, we will speak with Dr. Madeline Feldman. She is a rheumatologist in private practice with the Rheumatology Group in New Orleans, Louisiana. She is president of the Coalition of State Rheumatology Organizations, chair of the Alliance for Safe Biologic Medicines, and past member of the American College of Rheumatology Insurance Subcommittee. She has spoken and written about PBMs, particularly the effect that PBM formulary construction and utilization management tools have on pricing and access to drugs, specifically on availability and affordability. Madeline, welcome to the IPA podcast. This is a very impressive resume. Thank you for joining me. Since I've been with Independent Pharmacy Alliance for the last seven years, I've been reading your tweets, reading your social media messages. I've always been impressed with your ideas and thoughts on the prescription drug supply chain and what really is influencing drug pricing in the United States. Uh, But before we get started, Madeline, can you speak a bit about your professional background and how you became an advocate for drug affordability and PBM reform? Well, Thank you so much, Anthony, for having me on your podcast this week. I'm really excited. This is one of my favorite things to talk about, so this will work out really well. I've been in private practice in rheumatology in New Orleans for 30 years now. I guess maybe it was around nine or 10 years ago. As you know, rheumatologists treat patients with autoimmune conditions, and we've been using the biologics when they first came out, and the price of these medications keep going up higher and higher and higher. And I guess now maybe it's been nine years ago, a small molecule came out to sort of be in competition to some of these biologics. And we thought this is great. The price is going to be low, but sure enough, it was priced the same as a biologic. And that sort of got my mind going, why is it if it's not as much cost for R&D and it's been approved, why does it have to price as high as these biologic medicines that now go for seven to $10,000 a month? Well, in speaking to the drug company, basically they said we had to. Well, then CSRO, I was only on the board of CSRO back then. And we brought in some executives, well, let's just say ex-executives from the insurance side and started to piece together the story of why a drug that we knew cost less to develop had to be priced as high. And it had to do with getting on the formulary. And when I started seeing these prices continue to go up and how it affects my patients, it just seemed very obvious to me that this was something everybody should know about. And so I've sort of been on a a crusade with CSRO. I've sort of brought them along and now there's all kinds of organizations, but it really boils down to what's right and what's wrong. And the price increases, there's a lot of blame to go around and it affects my patients and it affects my ability to treat my patients in the way I think they should be treated. So do you really believe that when you started working with your patients, what type of things did you see? What happened as a result when they couldn't afford their medications? 
Well, I think where the, the obstacles came in first was we all have to use the generic, what we call simple disease modifying agents. And we really didn't have much problem with that. Although the PBMs would put prior authorizations and things like that in our way, but we could eventually get the drugs. Then what happened was first, I look at access as availability and affordability. If it ain't available, it doesn't matter if it's affordable or not. Right. And the availability part is what's covered on the formulary. So it really all boils down to the formulary construction. I can give you lots and lots of examples of where a lesser priced, but still unaffordable drug was the best for my patient, but it was not available because of step therapy. Either it was excluded from the formulary or they had to try drugs that I didn't think were good for them. Mm -hmm. And then the affordability comes in if I say, well, okay, we're going to give it to you anyway. And that's how the PBMs get out of this practicing medicine. They say, doctor, you can prescribe and give them anything you want. We just won't pay for it. And so consequently, if it's a drug that costs anything over a hundred, probably mm-hmm. close to 40, 50% of people will just abandon it at the pharmacy. Sure. So I would have patients that couldn't get the drug because it wasn't available and it wasn't affordable. And that happens all the time. And Did you find that when patients couldn't get the drug that it impacted their health because they just wouldn't seek treatment because it was unaffordable to them? You know, Maine put through a piece of legislation probably in 2019 where it looked at changes to formularies. It was mandatory reporting. And I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but about 60% of the folks that lost access either had 80% higher out-of-pocket costs or increased health care costs because of adverse events that would happen to them, increased diseases, or the other part was they had to pay more for the drug that wasn't approved. So we really see that when the drug is not available for reasons that are maybe unknown because they work, they're safe, and their price is less than the drugs that are on formulary. I thought formularies were supposed to be the lowest price drug, but that's not the case. And as a doctor, did you find that you had to consistently fight with the PBM, with the insurance company to try to get the proper medication for your patients? Yes and no. Sometimes the right choice was there. So it wasn't a fight every time, but I will tell you, I will diagnose a patient with rheumatoid arthritis and spend a lot of time talking about rheumatoid arthritis. I talk about all the different kinds of medications. And when we get to the bottom line and I've told them the pros and cons, and some seem more likely to be the kind of drug that they would need. The most important question of the visit is, what is your insurance? Sure. And that's really a shame that I've come to a trust that we're going to figure out the best thing for you. And then they give me their insurance and I go to in our office, it's bill. Everyone has a bill in their office. And then I have to come back and said, well, you know, that one's not covered. Nobody wants to hear their doctor say, but I think the second best thing for your rheumatoid arthritis would be this. Right. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to hear that. So then you can go through a series of, well, if you really think then maybe the manufacturer has some kind of a program And I don't even want to talk about Medicare in Part D. Mm -hmm. We tell the birthday story at Congress. You're 64. This is what you need to do in order to make sure when you turn 65, we can even treat you. 
it's something that I go through on a daily basis with patients. Before we decide to do the interview, I read one of your editorials where you had a great explanation on PBMs. I'm just going to read a line from it. It says, the mantra we hear over and over by pharmacy benefit managers is that they reduce the cost of medicines. What they don't tell us is that they reduce the cost of medicines for themselves. I thought that was really a creative way of describing what PBMs do, because whenever I testified in committee on a PBM issue, and let's say the lobbyists for PCMA were there and they were lobbying on behalf of the PBMs, this was always their mantra, that they reduce drug costs. But they never specifically say, well, for who? And I thought the way you explained it, it's very concise, but extremely accurate. They are not reducing the cost for the patient. Or society. Or society. (laughs) They're reducing for themselves. Could you elaborate a bit more on that and explain to everyone how exactly that works? You know, it's funny when you said testify before committees, I I had the opportunity one time to testify before the health subcommittee for energy and commerce and sitting right next to me was the representative from PCMA. I made sure that I brought up that PBMs oftentimes will put higher priced drugs on formularies over lower price drugs. And Anna Eshoo, who was a chairwoman, asked Kristen Bass from PCMA, who was sitting next to me, a delightful woman, I have to say, Dr. Feldman said that PBMs put higher price drugs on the formulary. How can you explain that? And she said, oh, no, 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 they're lower cost. And I didn't realize I could do this, but I pushed that little red button and I said, but they're higher priced. And she said, are they higher priced? And Kristen tried to say they're lower cost. And finally she admitted, yes, they may be higher price, but they're lower cost. Now, when you say we have a drug pricing crisis in the United States, and yet somehow the group that is in charge of the what, when, where, and how much of all the drugs that 80% of our population admit to putting higher price drugs, there's something wrong there. There's a perverse incentive They basically are incentivizing higher prices. I don't mean to let the manufacturers off the hook. Somehow, whenever people want to share the blame for the high cost, the high price of medications, they're looked at as, well, you're a shill for manufacturers. No, this is a a lovely tango the -hmm. two of them are making. If pharma wanted to pull out of the entire rebate price concession business, they could but they don't. I agree with you. I remember watching the House Energy and Commerce Committee where they had the PBM lobbyists and they had the manufacturer lobbyists sitting at the table. And they were both pointing the fingers at each other, saying each one is at fault for what's going on. But the one thing that they agreed on together was that they didn't want to disrupt the current system of pricing drugs. While they both blame each other, they still want to maintain the status quo. It brings me to my next question, Madeline, which is I want to talk to you about what I believe is one of the biggest scams in drug pricing, and that's the PBM rebate and discount game, where whenever PBMs come and testify before a legislative committee, they will state that they negotiate discounts or rebates with the manufacturer, thereby reducing the cost of the drug, supposedly, for the patient. But as you put it in one of your editorials, these concessions are actually kickbacks. They're kickbacks from the manufacturer that go to the PBM that 
is passed on then to the insurer in order to get onto the PBM's formulary, which is the list of drugs that they will pay for when a beneficiary goes to a pharmacy to pick up their prescription. You know, one of the things that I saw that you said in your editorial, it says, this is why PBMs will construct formularies with drugs that are higher priced over lowered priced alternatives bigger kickbacks. You know, over the years, how have you seen patients, how are they specifically hurt by this particular rebate and discount game that the manufacturers and the PBMs are constantly playing? So to kind of go back when you said kickbacks, you know, when I first started talking about these things, I felt a little awkward using the word kickback. And my son, who's an attorney, he said, mom, look, they need safe harbor from the anti-kickback statute. If it wasn't a kickback, they wouldn't need the safe harbor. (laughs) So I feel very good about using the word kickback. You know, when you said they get the rebate and then they pass it back, that contract between the manufacturer and the PBM completely proprietary. So for example, when Anthem used to hire Express Scripts as their PBM, and they found out all the money that was being left on the table that they weren't getting, they sued Express Scripts and eventually fired them. That was in 2017, I think. It started to become well known that they were collecting all these rebates and they weren't passing them back to anyone, maybe 40%. Well, over the years, what has happened, they started classifying these rebates first as fees. And and I have this one slide when I do the lecture. You would not believe the number of fees. It was an old Express Scripts contract that was put up on Axios.com. And I got a screenshot of it before Express Scripts sued they were going to sue them if they didn't take it down. I remember I got the same screenshot just before they took it down. It yes. was <laughs> unbelievable. So, you know, we had these reclassification of rebates. As soon as rebates became sort of part of the lexicon and people started talking about them, they go, oh, wait, 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 we got to get some money where we don't have to pass it back. And the way I describe it is they talk about savings. And when I gone before state legislatures to talk about transparency for PBMs, They use the word cost and they use the word savings. And I spoke to one of the legislators in Iowa and I knew she sold cows. Said, let's talk about a cow that costs $5,000 and a cow that costs $1,000. And you're going to buy it for 50% off. The $5,000 cow, you're saving $2,500. The $1,000 cow, you're only saving $500. The PBMs would put on their cow formulary the $5,000 cow because they can then go say, we're saving $2,500. Look at all we're saving. And they say, if we could only use more of these tools to put our formulary, we could save a trillion dollars over 10 years. My response to that is we can't afford a trillion dollars in savings. But a really good example, and this is actually the kind of small molecule I was talking about that 10 years ago came on the market. I'm not saying any names, I'm not saying anything, but there's three that have the same mechanism of action. The one that came out about 10 years ago, and that is priced right now somewhere around 60,000 a year. Another one came out four years ago, that's priced at around 30,000 a year. And then you've got the latest one that came out about two years ago, that's 70,000 a year. Which one do you think has the most penetrance on the formulary? $70,000 a year when you've got exact same mechanism of action. Now, remember for these specialty drugs, patients pay their co-insurance on a percentage of the list price. I would suspect that $70,000 a year drug 
at least 50% off, at least. And when you throw in the fees and other kind of price protection rebates, it's probably higher. So here the PBM, I'll just throw out a number, say they get it for 30,000 a year. My patient has to pay 20% of 70,000 every time until they get to their pharmacy deductible. So patients can't afford that. They could barely probably afford the $30,000 a year one. But here's a prime example where drugs across the board, safety, efficacy are about the same, but one that costs over 50% less can't buy their way onto the formulary. They could give it for 100% off and they still would not reach that $35,000 kickback that the real expensive drug could give to the PBM. So of course the PBM is going to take that one. And this is what you were talking about before when you mentioned perverse incentives. That yes. This is really a perverse incentive to get a more expensive drug on the list of drugs, the formulary that they'll pay for. And in the end, it's the patient that is picking up the extra costs, whether it's through their copay, coinsurance, deductible, or in some cases, unfortunately, they hit the trifecta and they have all three. Right. And for patient, let's say, that is insured, they're really at the whim of their insurance company and the PBM. It's whatever the PBM says the cost is to them at the time that they're picking it up. But I mean, of course, for a, a patient who's not insured, they could be paying the full cost if they're they not providing some it. discount. They just can't get it. But again, this is a prime example where my patient has no access to the, let's call it the cheapest drug. You know, everybody talks about competition. We need more competition. With more competition, we'll bring down the prices. This is another thing that I say in my lectures. If you're building a house and all the contractors are the same quality, none of them are your brother-in-law, and everybody figures that the more people competing, the price goes down. So then that way, competition lowers the price. But if you're selling your house and you've got the house that everybody wants, the more people bidding, what happens to the price? It goes up. Right. So which do you think is our, how you get onto the formulary? It's actually the competition raises the price because how do you raise your kickback? Well, if your kickback is a percentage of the list price of your drug, you can raise that or you can increase your market share. But it's very difficult to increase your market share if you're not on the formulary. So I don't want to hear drug pricing crisis and I don't want to hear we need more competition, not on the pharmacy side. I mean, my favorite community pharmacy just now sold out. I found out yesterday to Walgreens. Mm -hmm. They're a real popular place, but they can't afford to stay open anymore. So they direct patients to where they can get it and then how much they're going to pay. So it's a problem. Absolutely. And, you know, over the last seven years, I've represented independent pharmacy. We've obviously seen where they have what's called the spread pricing game. PBMs consistently overcharge the payer for the prescription drug, overcharge the patient, but then they reimburse the pharmacy extremely low. So it's basically charge high. Pay low. And then they keep a giant amount of the profit in the middle, which yep. actually could be returned. At least if this was returned back to the patient to reduce the cost of the drug, at least pharmacies would see some value in that. But they know that this money is all going to the PBM and the insurance company. And at the same time, like you stated, a lot of these community pharmacies are closing as a result. 
So we're seeing these Fortune 10 companies constantly enriching themselves through, let's say, spread pricing, overcharging the payer, underpaying the pharmacy. pharmacy. They underpay them. And then six months later, they pull back even more money right. you know, with the DIR fees. So it's, it's a bad game. And then they send a letter to the pharmacies telling them they would like to purchase them afterwards. <laughs> so, you know, it's an incredible business plan just on its face. It's just unbelievable how it works. There's a new layer, and I know we're really concentrating on these PBMs, but one of the things that CSRO has been doing to help with this is I spoke to the Community Pharmacist Association about four or five years ago, and they were all out there with their pitchforks already. I mean, we were the sort of first specialty of doctors that actually made people aware that PBMs were bad. Well, they've got a new way of hiding the money. A couple of years ago, Express Scripts started a subsidiary called Ascent. And they are now doing all of the rebate negotiations with manufacturers. And of course, they are a subsidiary. They're not the actual PBM themselves. Mm -hmm. And they're in Switzerland. So when the president of Express Groups sits in front of Congress and says with a straight face, we pass back 90% of all the rebates that we get to our clients. The key phrase in there is of the rebates we get. And that means we get from a cent. A cent may hold on to 70% of the rebates, pass only 30% back to Express Scripts, and then Express Scripts can say, we pass 90%. They just forget to say, of the 30% that we got from our subsidiary that we own that collected all the rebates. Madeline, that's really fascinating. I haven't actually heard that. So Ascent, in effect, is the middleman of the middleman. Yes, I just learned about, I tweeted about Ascent a few years ago based on something Adam Fine said in Drug Channels, and I mm-hmm. looked it up. And then sure enough, not long after that, CVS started their own GPO rebate aggregator called Zinc. So of the big three, Optum Express Grips and CVS Caremark, OptumRx didn't have one, which I thought was kind of odd because they're one of the big players as well. Sure enough, two days ago, MSR Pharma Services. They just started their GPO. So if you're going to do transparency legislation, it has to be the PBMs and all of their associated subsidiaries that collect any pharma revenue onshore or offshore. It's whack-a-mole. Every time when you think you can get them with transparency or something, they do something else to hide the money. It's like, where's the money? I think what you're saying is really important and crucial, especially for government affairs representatives like myself, because when we are developing legislation, it's specifically geared, let's say, on the PBM, the insurer. But now we're dealing with this extra layer, which is even more mysterious. I couldn't imagine how you can get more mysterious with the prescription drug industry. But this is really fascinating. Yeah. So this is definitely something that policymakers and people who work in government affairs need to watch out for when they're crafting their PBM reform policies. Yeah, they've just added another layer to make the money trail even less transparent. They're throwing all of the contracting, which is where those contracts between the PBM and the manufacturer, and then all the money is flowing there out of reach of federal or state legislation. Sure. I want to shift just a little bit, Madeline. I want to talk to you about some of the uh, policy and legislation that we've seen pop up around the country. We've seen a lot of bills, like you said, in terms of transparency, transparency laws. 
what a lot of pharmacy owners may not know is that when a law is passed, it takes some time to regulate those laws through the various departments of insurance in those states. And we're obviously seeing a lot of movement on the federal level where they're talking about drug pricing and there's discussion of PBMs. Do you see anything on the horizon that makes you feel hopeful that we may start seeing real regulatory reform when it comes to pharmacy benefit managers and the way they price prescription drugs? Well, you know, the biggest hope came out around the early 2019 in the last administration with the rebate rule. Mm -hmm. And essentially that would have been kind of the beginning of the end of this middleman collecting a lot of money and not having it benefit the patient at all. And it was going to start with Medicare, you know, and there's a really unhappy ending to this story where all of the rebates or a percentage of the rebates would go instead of to the PBM, they would take away this so-called safe harbor. So they could not take the rebate because they would be a kickback. And then they would put in a special safe harbor. So at the point of sale in the pharmacy, the patient would get the rebate. I mean, good Lord, you would have thought the sky was falling. There was a big forum in DC that I went to called a world without rebates. I mean, everybody and their cousin was there trying to figure out what are we going to do? This is going to trickle down to the commercial plans and the way we put formularies together. I mean, that was the big hope that this would happen. Well, it was pulled back in July of 2019 and it was resurrected last November, right before the last administration went out, it was actually put forth again as a finalized rule. So it was coming back, the rebate rule came back and immediately in January, PCMA sued and the new administration delayed it. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I gave in an op-ed when it was pulled back the first time was that the present administration, and this is something I didn't know at the time, that if you have a finalized rule that Congress comes in and either delays or blocks all of the GAO amount of money that supposedly that was going to cost can then be used by Congress in any way they want without going through appropriations. Mm. So I think they were afraid that it was going to be blocked and so that was one of the reasons they pulled it back. Well, lo and behold, it has been delayed to 2023. But the most recent thing that I have heard, and this was of earlier this week, was that, yes, the new infrastructure bill that has nothing to do with health care looks as though the Congress is going to try to delay this. And it was sued by PCMA, mm -hmm. delay the, the delaying and utilize that money to help pay for part of the infrastructure. You know, what, how you feel about that one way or another, the infrastructure bill doesn't really matter, but you're taking money away essentially from Medicare beneficiaries to use for something completely different. Sure. And you're postponing something that probably would have been the beginning of the end of the rebate system. Mm -hmm. And why do you think that occurred? Do you think it occurred because of politics, because oh, yeah. of the PBM lobby? Oh, yeah. Just keep naming them. It's sure. all because of all of that. The manufacturer um, you know, when, lobby, possibly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. The manufacturers, sure. there are winners and losers in the manufacturers mm -hmm. in this. And, you know, the loser, for example, is the one that makes a perfectly good drug that's priced at 30000 and they have to compete with the, um, the $70,000 drug. No competition there. One of the things that has always sort of confused me is why the Federal Trade Commission has not gotten in on this. Right. Well, from the back in the 90s, the manufacturers actually started their own PBM. So you had 
Merck, Medco, and there were a couple others. Well, the Federal Trade Commission did step in and say, you can't make the drug and then set up the formularies. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. But since then, there hasn't been a PBM that the Federal Trade Commission didn't love. Sure. They never find anything to be anti-competitive. They never find anything to be antitrust. The only sort of wedge that we've made in is something called the rebate wall. They're very mm -hmm. interested in the rebate wall right. because that puts the onus on the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. So very quickly is if, if you get put on the formulary as first choice preferred year after year after year after year, you build up a pretty big you know, market. So if you've got 60% of the market and the PBM tries to kick you off, they really can't because you're sure. going to pull back all your rebates and now they're going to be paying full price for 60% of their insurance. So now that manufacturer has the power. You know, it started off the PBMs blackmailing the manufacturers and or unless you want to say the manufacturers bribing the PBMs, mm -hmm. it really depends. But now sure. that manufacturer and they say, if you put this drug on, well, I'm going to pull my rebates. It could be mm -hmm. a completely different disease state. The point of that conversation is the Federal Trade Commission is looking into that. Mm -hmm. And I've actually spoken to them and I said, you can't look at rebate walls without looking at formulary construction. Did they give you a response? Hmm. Or did they just hmm. say, well, that's interesting? And hmm. You know, it's like yeah, silence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> silence. And I, and I think partly is what you said. I mean, when you look at the big three in healthcare, they're all in the Fortune 10. Even when Express Scripts was just a, a lonely little PBM on its own, it was number 17. Right. And the Fortune 500. And I'll just say it, Johnson & Johnson, who makes pretty much everything was mm -hmm. 33. So how do you have a little service organization, meaning that's all they did, they, they made nothing, they did no research. They set up the what, when, and where for 80% of the insurers, but they're number 17 on the Fortune 500? Right. That's not right. Madeline, I want to thank you for joining me today. I could talk to you for another hour. I really enjoyed this conversation. I really do. I am so happy that you are out there advocating on this because people are listening. And I do see on social media, when you say something, people take notice. So I think you are having an impact. And I just want to thank you for what you've done over the last years that I've been following you and seeing what you've been putting out there. So thank you. And it's really been my honor to talk to you. So thank you for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Anthony. To learn more about Dr. Madeline Feldman, go to csro.info. Thanks for listening to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. This podcast was made possible by the Independent Pharmacy Alliance and the president and CEO, John Giampolo. It was produced and edited by Zach Stone and music by Marcus Way. For previous and future episodes, check out ipagroup.org. Thank you very much. Bye for now.